In our summer teaching series, Arrow Prayers, we're exploring intense prayers by people of faith from the Old Testament and the New. Arrow Prayers are short, simple prayers, a few words, a sentence, or less, that focus faith and sharpen our awareness of God. And arrow prayers are suitable for a variety of situations and needs. They may be desperate cries for help, like, Lord, save me, or Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or humble requests for mercy personally, Lord, forgive me. Or corporately, Lord, forgive us. Now today, we'll work through an arrow prayer that is useful for bold intercession. Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18, inspired a bold request for God to reveal himself. Elijah's simple prayer, Lord, answer me, was a plea for God to make himself known and reclaim the hearts of his people. Lord, answer me is an arrow prayer when we sense a great spiritual battle for a person's soul. Answer me, Lord. Reveal yourself, Lord. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Lord, come down and make it plain. And this is our bold intercession when we realize a crucial point has been reached in the battle for a person's soul. On Mount Carmel, God answered Elijah's prayer with a flash of fire. Today, God may respond with a miracle or the spirit opening the person's eyes to see. Lord, answer me is asking God to do something according to his will that draws a person to himself. The question for us is whether we'll care enough or be involved enough or desperate enough to let that prayer fly. Now, Elijah was a prophet during one of the darkest periods of Jewish history. His name means Yahweh is my God. And his claim was that there was no reality except the God of Israel, which pitted him against wicked King Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, was the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel between 874 and 853 uh, BCE and ruled during a time of relative prosperity. Omri left Ahab an expansive empire that included territory east of the Jordan River uh, as well as the land of Moab. Ahab's marriage to Jezebel revived an alliance with the Phoenicians that hadn't existed since the time of King Solomon. And it was arranged marriages like this that drew Solomon's heart away from God. And Jezebel was a particularly destructive influence in Israel. Jezebel came with a large contingent of pagan priests and propagated her native religion in a sanctuary built for Baal in the royal city of Samaria. And this meant that the Israelites worshiped Baal as well as Yahweh, putting Yahweh on a par with the fertility God worshiped through ritual orgies. And together, Ahab and Jezebel were a terrible team, royally corrupt, building Asherah poles and platforms for worship in the hills, uh, sacrificing animals to Baal. Now, Baal and Asherah were the focus of a fertility cult whose adherents practiced this ritual fornication to incite Baal and Asherah to lustful indulgence, uh, which they believed fertilized the crops. That was at the center of the worship of Baal and Asherah. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. In verse 33 of that chapter, it says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In 1 Kings 21, verse 25, it says, there was never anyone like Ahab, 
who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. While Baal was worshipped as a fertility god in Canaan during this period, able to provide rich harvests and therefore prosperity, or so they hoped, Baal was actually a general term for gods. Any object in the creaturely world can be turned into a god, a Baal. In Elijah's day, there were rain bales and crop bales and gold bales and sheep bales and cattle bales and sun bales, and the list just goes on and on. We know that Jezebel had one specific god that she worshipped above all the rest, the bales of Tyre and Sidon, as they were called, the god of fertility of crops uh, by bringing rain. But in Samaria, you could worship anything you wanted to worship. It was a pluralistic context. You could go to the temple and worship Yahweh, then head to the hills and worship the crop bale or the rain bale or whatever. In fact, it was deemed best to worship all the Baals, all the gods, in order to cover all your bases, in order to make sure that all of your desires were met. And as a result of Ahab and Jezebel's malign influence, the people were divided and practiced a a syncretistic religion, a mixed religion, and therefore a very weak one, combining worship of Yahweh with idols. It wasn't so much that they rejected God. Uh, They just made him an insignificant part of their lives by embracing other gods. And while this is a primitive story, it's incredibly modern, really written for today. Success, financial achievements, popularity, all the things that interfere with the spiritual life today filled their lives. One of the surest truths in life is that the human heart will find something to worship. David Foster Wallace, the great novelist, who sadly committed suicide in 2006. Um, While he was not a Christian, uh, he made an address at Kenyon College in 2005 that revealed incredible insight into the nature of the human heart. He said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. There's no religious neutrality. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing someone like Jesus Christ is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. And it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. You'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms is that they're unconscious. They are default settings for human beings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into over time, day after day. And so Wallace said, these are the default settings for human hearts. And in other words, the human heart is an idol factory. It never stops creating bales. A Christian scholar, Walter Brueggemann, 
He says it this way about this passage, 1 Kings chapter 18, and Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal. He said, modern Baalism reduces the mystery of life into manageable techniques, into power plays at success. Uh, It's a life of independence, not dependence. It's control instead of trust. And if you live a life that tries to take control of everything by means of your own performance, as soon as you suffer, as soon as you lose something that you're chasing after, you'll be crushed. Your bail will fail you. Your God will say, dance for me, and you'll try to hold on to it until your God demands a sacrifice. And that means that Baalism, anything in our lives that's creaturely, that becomes our identity, it leads to emptiness. It leads to a drought. The rains stop and our lives dry up and we wither away. Now, Israel was three years into a disciplinary drought brought on by Ahab's idolatry and the people's complicity. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, of course, Ahab blamed Elijah for this, since Elijah was representing God himself. And God instructed Elijah then to head to the Kareth Ravine on the east side of the Jordan for a supply of water that he could attain there and be safe. And then God miraculously sent ravens uh, to feed Elijah. Really a beautiful story of preservation of the prophet. God instructed Elijah to go then to Zarephath, where a widow would care for his needs. And even though the widow and her ailing son were starving due to the drought, she gave Elijah what she had until she had no more. God provided for her and her son through a bottomless jar of flour and oil. And when her son died, Elijah, with God's, through God's power, raised him back to life. And it was at that moment that her confusion about the true and the living God in Israel was finally cleared. In 1 Kings 17, 24, it says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you're a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now it was time for the nation to get this clarity on the true God in Israel. In 1 Kings 18, 1, it says, After a long time in the third year, that was the length of the drought, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Elijah summoned Obadiah, a a palace administrator, a devout believer in the Lord, and asked him to go to Ahab and get this meeting set up. And so Elijah was ready to face off with Ahab. And by this point, Elijah was public enemy number one. Ahab had campaigned against Elijah during this time, blaming him uh, for the pain and the death that had come through this drought. And so Obadiah wanted nothing to do with this process. Obadiah had been hiding prophets himself uh, and saving lives, putting 50 uh, at a time in caves, giving them food and water to protect them from Jezebel, who was finding these prophets of the true God and, and putting them to death. And Obadiah was sure that no sooner would he set up a meeting than Elijah would stiff him by not showing up and Ahab would kill him. But Elijah gave him his word. And at the climactic meeting, Ahab accused Elijah of being the trouble bringer 
or the chaos causer, literally, in Israel. He said, it is you that is the troubler of Israel. So Ahab accused Elijah of bringing a deadly drought in the land because of his exclusivity. In other words, it was because Elijah insisted on worshiping just one God, the one true God. And so you think you have the truth, Ahab says, but you brought this on us by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the only way, and you can't worship Yahweh and Baals. That is what has messed everything up. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18, Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your, and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands. You followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, it says, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah challenges the people to stop dancing back and forth between Yahweh and Baals. Uh, he is, in his accusation, referring to uh, occultic ritual dancing that took place in the temple in Samaria to the Baals. He says, it's time for you to stop dancing in front of the statue that you have made um, and that you need to stop dancing in front of these statues that you have in front of you of all these other gods. It's time for discernment, time to define what is true and what is false. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people don't answer. They wanted religious neutrality. But Elijah says it's not possible. It's the Baal way or Yahweh, but not both. We live in exact, the exact same moment of this radical religious pluralism today, where the common Western mind says, aren't all religions basically the same? It doesn't really matter. Most people are open and accepting of religion in general in the modern world. The last worldwide survey of religion says that 84% of all peoples in the world believe in some type of supernatural reality, some type of God. But while the Western mind is not hostile to religion, it's fine with folks on a religious path of some sort. Exclusivity of one God or one path is rejected. Elijah wanted nothing short of a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel to prove that there was one path, one God, and one truth. 1 Kings 18, 22 and following. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. And so get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And so they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. 
But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. So Elijah invites the prophets of Baal to go first. There were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And so 850 on one side and just Elijah on the other. So he was happy to wait. Elijah knew that the prophets of Baal would put on a wild show. He'd seen this one before. It was common in Ahab's Israel. Baal and Asherah were gods that demanded a performance. They required a crowd of noisy adherents crying out for an answer. For six hours, they cried out in a cultic ritual of prayer, yet literally, but no voice. And so they danced more, cutting themselves with sharp stones, their own blood dribbling into the mud, running in tight circles. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing when you think of that scene. But finally, Elijah can't help himself, and he begins to mock them. In verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's, a, he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so they took two shifts. They went from mid-morning till noon, and then noon to midday. But nothing. Verse 30 says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sea of of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now, remember that this was a time of severe drought and water was precious. But he says, pour water on it. And then he said, do it again. And they did it again. And then he said, do it a third time. Uh, And they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again, turning their hearts back again to the Lord. So Elijah finishes with an arrow prayer. Lord, answer me. Elijah's entire prayer lasted less than 30 seconds after Baal's prophets had prayed for over six hours. It's not volume or eloquence, but passion and faith that send bold prayers directly to God's heart. And in those times um, that we represent God before an unbelieving world, we have this arrow prayer in our quiver, Lord, answer me. Elijah didn't have to say much because he knew that the God to whom he was praying was real and alive and listening, and God answered. Verse 38, it says, And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. 
When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and they were executed there. Lord, answer me. It's an arrow prayer, asking God to reveal himself so that others may believe and, and receive the truth, to see it and believe it. Lord, answer me. It invites God to intervene in ways that only he can. This is the prayer we pray when we've said what can be said, and we prayed what can be prayed. I, I prayed this prayer often uh, during appointments with folks who brought concerns about a family member or a friend. And after they've shared the truth with them and prayed for them, Lord, answer me, invites God to interrupt the person's life to clarify the truth about life. It's asking God to do whatever is necessary for them to finally see. And sometimes the person may be placing their faith in the wrong, wrong object. They need to see that. No matter how much passion we have, uh, we can be passionately wrong. And the people who followed Baal surely had a kind of faith. They believed in Baal, but their faith was worthless because the object of their faith was worthless. Answer me is an arrow prayer when we sense a great spiritual battle for a person's soul. Answer me, Lord. Reveal yourself, Lord. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Lord, would you come down? And this is the prayer of someone who cares deeply for another. And we seem to have lost the sense that there's a battle going on for souls constantly with every individual. There's a battle going on. And so Jesus humbled himself. He entered humanity to enter that battle, and he calls us to continue his work. After God showed up, Elijah made an interesting offer to King Ahab. In 1 Kings 18.41, it says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat, and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. Now, in 1 Kings 18.41, we see more than just an invitation for Ahab to have some food and drink before the storm hits. Now that salvation has come on this mountain, Elijah invites Ahab to receive it, to break bread and drink the wine of God, to celebrate the one true God. He is calling him to repentance and to submit himself to the true and living God. The Baals, the idols in our lives say, perform for me, sacrifice for me. And certainly Ahab tried to do that for his God. But then the Lord, they've shaken their fists at, invites them up for bread and wine. That is grace. And all this took place on Mount Carmel. And Carmel means garden of God. The drought in Eden, the drought in Carmel in the land. Uh, it had, this is God's land. But now that the sacrifice has been accepted, even the most wicked are invited. Come, eat and drink in the garden of God. The way has been opened up for you, Ahab. And while the fire coming down was intense, the acceptance of the sacrifice in the story, the acceptance of the sacrifice is the real point. The bulls offered on the altars prefigured the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. God has accepted the sacrifice. Now, come up, eat and drink, and now invite others to do so as well. John the Baptist, later on, 
uh, in the spirit of Elijah, the scriptures tell us, pointed to one greater than himself. Elijah said, see the bull consumed, but John said, see the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to be burned, to be cut, to be destroyed. He was the sacrifice so that idolaters may be invited into the vineyard of God. So the encounter on Mount Carmel was a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice so that we could come to God. Now, finally, there's a a parallel to the story in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is setting out for Jerusalem. Uh, The time for his passion has come. The time for him to offer himself uh, on the cross. And he sent some of the disciples ahead to get things ready for him in Jerusalem. And people were not cooperating uh, with their requests uh, in Samaria. And because remember, this is the town that Ahab built. Uh, and they were on their way to Jerusalem. And so the, the Samaritans and the folks in Samaria were not sympathetic with the people in the southern kingdom in Judah and Jerusalem. And so oftentimes people would just avoid Samaria altogether, go on a route down along the Jordan River to get down to Jerusalem because there was hostility there. And so they encountered this hostility and then James and John had an idea. They said, Lord, can we call down fire on heaven and just destroy these people? And Jesus' response was immediate. He said, essentially, knock it off. And here's why. The fire is not for idolaters. It's for the Son of God. They rejected him. We rejected him. And so he died for us. Jesus' love for idolaters is what makes Christianity so unique. And this is our message. And this is why we pray prayers like, Lord, answer me. We want people to come up. Uh, and to sup with the Lord, to break bread, to drink the wine of grace, uh, and to experience the wonders of being forgiven by God. And when we pray the arrow prayer, Lord, answer me, it's an invitation to come up and feast on the grace of the one true God.